I've had numerous experiences happen to me in my life, one of them being very profound and very dramatic was a near-death experience. I had an enormous shift in awareness in a very small time window. Coming up, Ariane talks with life coach and mentor Gary King, next on Change Nation from the first 30 days. To the first 30 days. I'm Ariane, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Gary King. Gary is a leading expert in the field of self-help and motivation. He is the creator of the Power of Truth programs. He's had a very diverse career, from service in the Navy to vice president of sales and marketing in the television industry to working on the road with Tony Robbins. But a series of tragic events and a battle with severe depression resulted in a near-death experience which really changed his life completely. Our focus today will be on the first 30 days of getting through some very tough life changes. Gary, you have an amazing inspirational story about change, about handling tough life transitions that most people might have been just sort of stuck and not able to move on from. So probably the first thing I'd love you to do is share with me what it is that happened, what led up to certain events in your life, and and then really let's talk about who you've become and, and what you're doing with that experience today. Great. Well, let me start by putting it in a context. Um, I grew up with um, no self-esteem. I didn't have low self-esteem. I basically had zero self-esteem. And a couple of the contributing factors to that was I was born with a birthmark on my face. It was right below my left eye. It was the size of a penny. It was brown like a penny. And my best friend in grammar school, um, he called me Mole. And not alone did he call me Mole, but every time he saw me, he would put his finger on his face where the mole would be on my face and he rubbed it around and actually got in my face and made a big joke out of it now for and this me, was your best friend this was yeah this was one of my best friends that's correct mm. and for him it was a big joke for me of course he only needed to do that once he never needed to repeat it again um, because the effect it had on me is I considered myself to be ugly and of course from that point on when I would look in the mirror, the only thing I would see about my physical being was the mole. So that kind of set the stage for, um, at that point, um, low or no self-worth. Now, the other thing that happened to me is I had what I considered to be an, um, a disconnected relationship with my dad. I mean, we, we lived together. I have a sister. We all lived together. It wasn't a single-parent family. Um, but I never felt connected to my father in any way. Um, I never felt that he liked me. I never felt that he accepted me. And as a consequence of those things, I never really thought that he loved me. Well, he died in 1967, and prior to his death, uh, I think I was around 20 years old, and I came home one evening um, from being out with my friends, and my mother's car was missing from our driveway at our home, and, and it was late. It was 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning, and I knew exactly why the car was missing. My, my suspect was that 
he had had a heart attack. He was a type A personality. He was a workaholic, and he was going 100 miles an hour all the time. And sure enough, I went in the house. There was a note on the kitchen table saying that my mother was at the hospital, and, and my father had had a heart attack. So when I saw her the next day, she immediately started asking me to go see him. Well, I was really reluctant to do that. Like I say, I never thought he really accepted me or liked me or loved me, so I resisted doing it. Well, the days clicked off, and finally one day she said to me, look, he's getting out of the hospital in two days. You must go see him. So um, I agreed. I got in my car, and I headed for the hospital, and um, I located his room and walked in. And I can remember this as I'm talking about it right now. I walked in. It was a double room. There wasn't anybody in the other bed. And I first walked in, and I was standing at the foot of the bed, and I was having a conversation with him, and I walked around to the side of the bed, and I was talking to him. And right in the middle of the conversation we were having, he died in the middle of the conversation. Well, the way that I framed that in a life experience was that he disliked me at such a level, my presence caused him anxiety, and he had another heart attack and died because I was in the hospital room. And that was how I processed that at 20 years old or 21 years old. Now, I never got any type of therapy for that. Uh, My family at the time, for whatever the reason, um, didn't recognize the need for that. And as a result of that, I carried that for about 25 years, believing that I had caused my father's death. And, of course, when you add that to the already low or no self-esteem, it compounded it. So I worked really, really hard to get people to like me and accept me. That was my number one role in life, to be liked and accepted. So my life was centered around doing things that both had to do with creating significance and um, and creating validation. So I worked hard to get validated because I had a very dim view of myself. Yep. Um, so that's kind of a abbreviated um, version of what had happened to me when I was young. Now, when I was 30 years old, I got married and... I was married for seven years. My wife ultimately left me. She ended the relationship with me. And I was so insecure at that point that I actually had to call a female friend of mine um, and ask if this female friend would come. Now, keep in mind, at 37 years old, I was a businessman in the community where I lived, and I was a recognized businessman. I had been, I had a powerboat racing career, so I was in the media a lot. And so at 37 years old, I had to call a female friend and ask her if she would come to my house and sleep in the same bed with me, and it had nothing whatsoever to do. It wasn't sexual, it wasn't physical. It was that was my level of insecurity at that point in my life at 37 years old that I couldn't sleep in a bed by myself. 
it was almost like being a child again. It was almost like being five years old. And as an adult, of course, to look at myself in that light as an adult, that just compounded things even more um, that I couldn't function on my own as an adult. Um, so I, at that point, I started to drink rather heavily. And uh, I actually, because I needed validation, I immediately got in a relationship with a woman who was a, a tragic alcoholic um, in every sense of the word. And what that led to was a complete breakdown on my part. I mean, I started, it was a daily ritual, and I would go meet her, and, and then ultimately she left me. Um, she lived with me, and she, she, in the middle of the day when I was at work, gathered up all her things, got in her car, and drove to California. So I figured at that point there wasn't much left of me then. Um, I'm, I couldn't even get an alcoholic to love me and um, stay with you. So at, at that point right there, I had actually had uh, a breakdown. And I, I can remember that I went and I, I knew I was in trouble. And I looked up the name of the number one psychiatrist in the area that I live in, who a lot of people knew. And I made an appointment with him. And I remember the day I went there, and I sat with him for an hour, and all he did was ask me questions. What I was looking for was answers, and what he was looking for was all these answers to these questions. Now, the analytical person that I am, when the appointment ended, and, it was, and this was a long time ago, it was a $150 appointment a long time ago, and I walked out and I remember that, well, why would I go back? Because I can see, it was almost like I was analyzing him, and I could see what he was trying to do with me. So I, I remember I... Very shortly after that, I was at the St. Petersburg Boat Show, and I was walking around the boat show, and I ran into a longtime friend and customer of mine, and he looked at me and he said, oh my God, what's wrong with you? Do you have cancer or something? Because I'd lost like 45 pounds. Mm. And I said no, and I started to tell him what happened. And he said, well, my best advice to you is to leave the boat show, go to a bookstore, and buy a book called The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck. Now, I had never read a book in my lifetime at that point. Even in school, I didn't read books. So I immediately went to a bookstore, and I bought that book. And I remember how hard it was to read. I remember I would have to read a page and read it over two, three, four, five times before I could comprehend what was on the page. As a result of that, when I completed that book, I went and bought several others. Now, this was at a point where I was just starting to... Um, and, of course, through... 
through the divorce and through the rejection of the alcoholic woman, I became very suicidal, which led me to the psychiatrist. And then, of course, the book happened, and I started, bit by bit, I started making associations, different associations in my brain. Just as I started, I mean, if 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 changing my life was climbing a ladder, I was on the first rung of climbing out of this pit that I'd been in for so long, and I was on the first rung headed up this ladder, and I was at work one day, which was a struggle at best just to be at work, and I got a phone call from my best friend, and who's been my best friend for years and years. His name is Johnny Green. I got a call from him, and he said, hey, are you going into town today? And I said, well, not really. What do you need? He said, I need a starter for my car. And I went, yeah, I'll go get it, no problem. Well, my office is not very far from the main road into the city, and at that time the main road into the city was five lanes wide, one way. It was a one-way street. So it was 2 o'clock in the afternoon, 2.30, and I headed into town. And I'm driving down. The traffic was pretty heavy. I was in, the, I believe, the center lane. And I got to a point where I was halfway to the downtown area. And this is what I didn't see. And the reason I say this is what I didn't see, because this came out afterwards from witnesses. I didn't see a young woman on the curb with three children, all hand in hand. Um, I didn't see this woman step off the curb in the middle of a city block, not at a crosswalk, and not at a traffic signal, and she headed off to to weave her way through the traffic on this one-way street. I didn't see her get into the traffic and panic because the traffic was so heavy, and she turned loose of her kids and told them to run. And I ran over her five-year-old son, and... He died in the street in front of my vehicle. Um, At that point, I laid on the seat of my... I was driving a truck, and I laid on the seat of the truck in shock. And within a few minutes, um, the media was all over the place and the police. And I stepped out of the truck, and this man came running up to me. And he pointed his finger about two inches from my face. And he said, I'm going to kill you. That was my son. And that compounded already what was horrific. My mind, my brain couldn't comprehend what had just happened. I mean, I have a tremendous love for kids. I I always am involved with kids in some way. And at that time, I used to dress up as Santa Claus on Christmas Eve day and roller skate around the city where I live and give out candy canes and candy canes to the kids and carnations to the to the women. So I've always been involved with kids in some way or another and I I couldn't comprehend what had just taken place. And my first thought was I have to end my life now. I can't there is no possible way I can go on because I'll never ever be able to deal with the guilt of what had happened. I went home the next morning. My doorbell rang rather rather early. I was still in shock. I answered the door. There was a man in a suit 
standing there. I said, is your name Gary King? Yes. He goes, well, he handed me a business card. He was an attorney. And he said, I just stopped by to ask you a couple of quick questions. I'd like to know if your house is paid for and if your business is paid for. And I thought how absurd it was for a person within 24 hours come to a person's house. Now, I was not cited in that accident, so I wasn't ticketed for being at fault. I couldn't believe how absurd it was that a person had come to my door, an attorney, and asked me if my house was paid for and my business was paid for. I mean, the common term for an individual like that, are, they're called ambulance chasers. Yep. So at that point, I sunk really deep. And I remember I wound up laying on my couch for a really long time, and I remember that I at one point went back to the books again and I started to read I started to read inspirational books but to to just jump back a little bit quickly the second day after the accident I was looking for some peace some inner peace and somebody said you should go see Dr. Waking Dr. Waking had written a book, and he was a counselor, a Christian counselor in a church that wasn't very far from my business and where I lived. And So I made an appointment and went to see him. This was the day after. And I remember sitting in his office, telling him the story. He was telling me some things. And I finally I said, you know, Dr. Waking, I'm going to have to leave where I live, where I love, and I'm going to have to leave. I'm going to have to move somewhere else. And he said, why? And I said, because I can never drive down that road again, ever. And so to facilitate never having to do that, I need to relocate. And he said, he looked at his watch and he said, well, we have to end in five minutes. And he said, what you're going to do when we end is you're going to get in your car and drive down that road. And I went, that's not possible. I I can't do that. And he said, you absolutely can do that. And when you leave here, that's exactly what you're going to do. You're going to get in your car and drive right from this church down First Avenue. And that's exactly what I did within 24 hours. That was one of the most difficult things I had ever done. And at that moment, I couldn't see the relevance and I couldn't see the reason. I mean, to me, the reason was about experiencing more pain back then. When I look back at it now, that wasn't the reason for it at all. Um, so then I started, I started consuming a lot of books. And I remember at the time... I are you was, still, I, at this point, are you still in the first 30 days after the accident? Or yes. has this taken a, a little bit longer? My neighbor, who's a really good friend of mine... He stopped at my house one day, and he said, I went through a similar experience that you went through. It had to do with his wife leaving him. And he said, I started running. And he said, every day I run like four and a half miles. He said, I'm not going to stop at your house and wait for you, but if you want to run with me, I run right by your driveway every morning at like 6.30 in the morning, and you're welcome to run with me because it will save your life. And I thought, well, no run before. I'll try it. And I remember <laughs> he he came to, when this was all happening. It was cold. It was dark. It was cold out. And 
I went out and he ran by and I started running behind him and I made it a couple of blocks. Um, I was relentless and I kept this up. And he would run two and a half miles or two point two and a quarter miles and he would stop for like uh, he'd stop for five minutes and then make a U-turn and run the two and a quarter miles back. And so I remember I, I it was a real milestone when I got to the point where I could um, get to the two and a quarter mile mark. I, it was a huge thing for me to get to the two and a quarter mile mark. And then I remember the day that I got to the two and a quarter mile mark and I, and I made an instant U-turn. He stopped to catch his breath. I made a U-turn and kept running, and I said, I'll see you back at the house. Mm. So I actually continued on, and I did that for nine years, about eight and a half or nine years. And that was an enormous factor right there in um, getting over the emotional overwhelm. And I remember after that, I spent about 14 years traveling all over the world as as an artist. Uh, I was a sand sculptor, and I did a lot of projects all over the world sculpting sand, huge projects, some of them 60 feet high. And I remember I went to a project at, um, in Chicago, and I was commissioned, myself and another guy were commissioned to do the busts, carve out of sand, the busts of the six most prominent people in psychiatry. It was the International Psychiatric Convention. And so I went up there for a week and did these sculptures, and they did all these lectures. So I had time off, and I remember going into a room because I had the right credentials, and I was listening to these trainers working, you know, teaching psychiatrists. And I remember this guy stood up in front of the room, and he said, the number one factor in horrific emotional challenges far superior to therapy and to um, drug intervention is exercise, far superior on the front end. And I thought that's interesting because that's exactly what I did and I didn't have any of that information at the time. But the, but the exercise right off the bat is what, is what saved me and the combination of the exercise and reading books inspirational books, motivational books. And specifically in those books, the books that helped me the most out of all of them were books that had case histories in them, books that that the author told a story but then had information from actual people's lives and how how very inspiring that was for me to read about other people's lives and what they actually did to overcome their challenges. Yep. Um, Gary, how did you deal with the guilt? mm, Well, one day, and I can't remember the timeline on this, one day I made a decision and my decision was I had to forgive myself. Now, later on in life, I'll put this piece in right here because I just started doing this piece. For me, it was a, it, it was a decision that you make, and then it's a journey that you take. It's not instantaneous. So first I decided to forgive myself, and then I took a journey. 
And that journey was all about doing all the things that cause one to forgive themselves. And there's, a, there's numerous elements to that. I mean, at that point in my life, I was still faced with the zero self-esteem. So forgiving yourself when you have zero or low self-esteem, you have other challenges there. There's other elements. I mean, there was the, there was the situation with the accident, but there was also all the other elements yep. which compounded it. So first I made the decision to forgive myself, and then I started on the journey. And the journey had to do with self-acceptance. It had to do with reading books about forgiveness, one of them in particular, forgiveness, uh, letting go of the past and getting on with your life by Sidney Simon. That's not the exact title, but it's close. Um, So I started on this journey, and... I've had numerous experiences happen to me in my life. One of them being very profound and very dramatic was a near-death experience. And that was intertwined with all of these things, too. Um, And I remember when I had that experience, I actually came out of my body and I hovered up against the ceiling and I was looking down at myself and I thought, this is very interesting because I'm fully conscious but I'm not in my physical body and I thought that goes against traditional beliefs and I thought there's more to life than I ever imagined well as I started to process the accident I started to realize something I started to realize at the core of me there were some beliefs about life in general and my core belief about life in general was that I had lives before this one. And there have been things happened to me in my life that that validated that, different situations through my lifetime. And I started to look at the accident and the little boy and I remember right after the accident, I tried to find out who that boy was because I felt moved to pay for his funeral. And I started researching, and I found that the family was actually an indigent family, and they were being helped by a a nun from a Catholic church who ran a non-funded organization called Daystar Center. They only took donations. It wasn't funded. And I remember I found, somebody said, go see Sister Ruth. She'll tell you about the family. So I found this place. It was in a little tiny building on an alleyway. And I went in and sat down with the sister. I told her who I was. Of course, she knew all about the accident. And she said, I just want to tell you, I helped the, that family. And they're indigent. And she told me something like, yeah, the little boy was being abused. And the state of Florida was about to intervene in all of that. And I thought, this is interesting. There's just, there's more, there's more elements to it. And I thought, my sense is that not consciously, unconsciously, we choose when we come and we choose when we go. And in some way, that's part of our lives. That's my understanding of life. And I thought this little boy at some point, I believe he had a he had a choice to make. 
and his choice had something to do with, well, he could come into this lifetime and make a lot of, he'd have a lot of opportunities. He could go to school. He could raise a family. He could start a business. He could go to college. He could do all of those things and more. Or he could leave early. And by leaving early, he could facilitate something larger than himself, bigger than him, and, and what he wanted to do and who he wanted to be. He would, he would facilitate something larger than that. And I remember when I started looking at it, things resonated and rang true for me when I started, when I started looking at all those things. So as I had mentioned, a part of my experience was during the course of all these things, I had a near-death experience where I laid in my bed and I was dying, and I knew I was dying. There was no mistaking it for something else. Well, two very profound things happened as a result of that. The first thing that happened, which was very surreal and very strange and very odd, was when I didn't cross over to the other side, I couldn't lie. Now, as strange as it may seem, you know, it was an experience like the Jim Carrey movie, Liar, Liar. It was very, very strange because I couldn't lie to myself and I couldn't lie to other people. I couldn't exaggerate. I couldn't do any of those things. And I thought that was very, very odd. Were you doing a lot of this before, Gary? Like, was it a big thing for you? Was I doing a lot of what? Lying, exaggerating. (laughs) Well, here was my life. Here's how I explained my life prior to the experience. I lived what I considered to be a basically honest life. And what that meant in the context I use it is I wasn't out in the world consciously trying to deceive or hurt people or scam people. I was just out in the world doing my best to deal with everyday life. So basically honest for me was if a phone call came and I didn't want to talk to the person, I said, tell them I'm not here. If I was late to a meeting, I'd say I had a flat tire when I didn't. Um, In my marriage, I had several affairs. Um, I was basically honest. I wasn't honest. Honest people don't have affairs. Basically, honest people have affairs. Um, I was basically honest, so I would make decisions in the moment having to do with whether I would be transparent or authentic or not based on the set of circumstances. So that's that's how I lived my life. So when that experience happened and I couldn't lie, yes, it was profound. Um, what, what happened to me, and one of the reasons, I think I read somewhere in the neighborhood of a 1,000 books. And the reason I read so many books is I was trying to, I was trying to unwind my own life. I, I was... I was psychoanalyzing myself, trying to figure out what happened to me, how I got from all these different things. And I was a successful business person, I mean, when it started to completely unravel. And I went, I need to find out what happened to me. I need to find out how I got from where I was, ultimately to having the near-death experience, not being able to lie. And then the second thing that happened to me was, and I'd read about this I, in my mind's eye, 
I had to relive my life's indiscretions, and it was like a movie, and it went very fast, and it was in color. And I went back to when I was a young kid, and I had to relive every way I was out of integrity, starting when I was a child. It moved very fast. It was very uh, uncomfortable. And my sense is that every human has to do that. Yep. Um, when you transition, you have to look at all those things. And you can call it what you will. You, you can call it balancing out your life's karma. You can call it um, you reap what you sow. You can give it any term you want. But I think everybody has to do it. And so I had to look at it all. And, of course, I was consuming all these books after that because I wanted to figure out what happened to me. And what I came to the conclusion is that I had an enormous shift in awareness in a very small time window. So the time window of the near-death experience was probably an hour in total. And in that one-hour period of time, I shifted from one end of the consciousness spectrum to the other end, so to speak. I made a huge leap. And then, of course, I started to notice, and that wasn't all I started to notice. I mean, the being out of integrity issues was one thing, and the other thing, I just started to be very aware of everything around me that was there all the time. I just wasn't aware of it. So um, it, it was an acute awareness thing. And that was what I discovered. Um, now, of course, that was back. All these things happened from 19. 76 to 1986 um, in that 10-year chunk of time. So, uh, I mean, at this time, Gary, after the accident, mm-hmm. near-death experience, 1,000 books, what are you making the accident mean? Are, are you assigning a an empowering meaning to it, or is yeah, it still absolutely. something that's in the shadow that you're ashamed of? No, not at all. Matter of fact, and you would have to understand, I guess, and be in my place in my life where I am today in 2007 for me to make a comment like that accident was one of the most powerful blessings in my whole entire lifetime. And in the context of my life now versus where it was then, if I could change it, I wouldn't. If I could, I wouldn't. Now, from the outside, that may sound cruel, but I believe that there's a, there, there was something bigger in all of that, and I looked for the something bigger. Um, I lived for a while as a victim, and I told everybody that I was a victim, that this had happened to me, and that allowed me to not take responsibility for things that were going on in my life. And as I started to unravel it all, I saw a bigger picture. I saw a very empowering, an extremely empowering situation. And then, of course, it was what I went on to do with all that. It wasn't what happened to me. It was two things. It was what I ultimately made it mean and then what I actually did with what happened to me. You know, what I actually did with it many years later, um, around 2001, 15, 16 years later, I knew the experience was extremely profound. I knew it was extremely painful. I knew it affected myself in a very painful way and other people in a very painful way. And learning to forgive myself, I thought, you know, 
there's something about that experience that was so profound. I'm supposed to do something with that. I just never knew what it was. So I had an opportunity six years ago to address a group of people. I had no plan. <laughs> I had no syntax. I had, I had an opportunity to address about 250 people. And I called my talk that I gave to them for 90 minutes. I called it, I just picked a, picked a term and I called it the power of truth. The power of being authentic and transparent. And I gave this talk to these people and I used, I talked about my life experiences specifically. I talked about the accident. I talked about many other things. And I noticed that the information that I was talking about and the way I was sharing it had be, was very thought-provoking for the people who were listening. And I noticed that about 20% of the people, there were tears rolling down their face. And it, and it was like that for the whole hour and a half. Mm. I noticed that people were very engaged, almost to the point of being some of them in, in like a trance-like place. Yep. And I thought, that's very interesting. That's not the result I thought I was going to get. I actually thought that there would be people who would resist hearing about being honest and resist hearing about being authentic. I thought people, a certain amount of people would get up and leave the room because they didn't want to hear about it. But what actually happened was nobody moved. Um, so that was the beginning stages of it. And, you know, as a result of what happened to me, I actually have turned it into, well, I've turned it into a mission. I've also turned it into a, an endeavor. And I can tell you when I look back at my life, I look back at my indiscretions, and I see that the choices I made, I made a lot of choices that if I'd had different information before I made the choice, I would have made a different choice. Yep. If I'd had basic information, when I say basic, if somebody at some point in my, well, let's say school time, in my, I, I didn't go to college, I went to 12 years of public school, and if somebody in that 12 years would have said, or there would have been a program, or there would have been curriculum that said, well, here's some traits of low self-esteem. If you have this, here's what you can do. Yep. You can do these things. Read this book. Do this. Um, here's some information about forgiveness, because in your lifetime, there are going to be people, I don't care who you are, where you need to forgive yourself and other people. And here's how you can do that. Here's some steps that you can take. Here's how, if you have a challenge with always looking for somebody to love you or validate you, here are some things you can do to not have to go through that in your life. So for me at this stage, many, many years later, at 62 years old, the accident set the stage for me to be a completely different person because I'm nothing, I'm, I'm nothing at all like I was when that happened. I'm a completely different, totally different person than back in the mid-'80s. And all those experiences that happened to me, you know, I now have spoke all over the world to thousands of people. I speak in the schools. 
Um, I'm actually headed back to Australia in 10 days to speak in the schools in Australia. So from a horrible life experience, numerous horrible life experiences that had me standing at my sink in my kitchen one night with a serrated steak knife sawing on my wrist and not having the courage to complete the process because it really wasn't about any of my life. It had nothing to do with that at all. What it had to do with was ending the pain, not my life. And because I didn't have... I couldn't perceive any way to do that back then. I was sawing on my wrist and didn't have the courage. I didn't have the courage to live my life, and I didn't have the courage to end it, either one. And so over the past 15 years, I developed the courage to live at 100%. And living at 100% means being authentic, even when it's not comfortable. It requires authenticity, and it requires transparency. Gary, do you believe that from any of these tragic crises, situations that might show up in anyone's life, that something good will come from it? That's my belief. I believe that what I did was at the time when those things happened, all I could see was what was wrong and what was bad. I never actually stopped during the actual, when it happened, to look at what where the opportunities lie in all of it. Because no matter how harsh, and I don't, you, you could pick any set of circumstances, and for me, the only ones that I can really relate to are the ones I've lived, obviously. Now, there's so many other scenarios, but I'll tell you, for me, when you're in a situation where you're going to, you're planning on ending your life because of the situation, doesn't matter what it is. You could have lost all your money in the stock market. If you're gonna end your life, that's horrific. So I saw the opportunity in it, and my sense is, well, let me put it in a different way. I just had an amazing opportunity. Something amazing just happened to me. Um, several weeks ago, I had an opportunity to speak in the Dublin, Ireland women's prison. And I spoke to women who were known all over the country of Ireland by the way they'd been judged and displayed in the media. The experience was profound for me. Uh, it took courage for me to do what I did um, because I didn't know exactly what to say when I was in the prison to these women. But the thing I noticed right immediately when I went in, and a social worker had told me about individuals that I'd be speaking to, and I looked around and I went, you know what I'm realizing? These are not bad people. And it didn't matter. I mean, there were numerous life sentence women in there. These were not bad people. These were people who made bad choices. And my perception was the reason they made bad choices was because they didn't have an opportunity or didn't take the opportunity to research information that would give them the tools to make better choices. So as I look at people and their sets of circumstances, to me, no matter what, and this is to me, no matter what the situation is, somewhere in the situation, there's a profound opportunity. I'm writing this down. And for me, of course, you know, when I, when I look back at the accident and the little boy, because of that accident, what was facilitated out of that is 
I travel around and give talks about forgiveness, being honest, and liking what you see when you look in the mirror. That's what I do. And that all came out of that experience and a couple of the other ones that were connected to it. And in the world today, there's not very many people doing that. Yeah. And that is the very thing. Those three things right there, forgiveness, self-worth, and integrity or honesty and ethics and those things, those are the three things that would completely reshape the world. Gary, a couple more questions. For people who are listening to this, who might be at the place where you were at many years ago, Mm -hmm. very succinctly and briefly, how do people get out of the hole? How do they how do they start? Well, for me, I will tell you what I relate to is how I started and I can tell you when I was at the depths of when I was at the absolute depths of hating myself and wanting to end my life and seeing no future whatsoever. I was buried in debt. Um and that was a whole nother situation, but when I the the very first Thing I did was become physically active. Instead of laying on my couch, I became physically active. It wasn't easy to do, but it was essential. So for me, I started to run um, because I couldn't stay in the emotional place when I was using my body. And, and then um, it was a matter of, well... It was a matter of dealing with the cause for me and not the symptom. So as I looked at my life, I knew what the symptoms were. I also knew what the cause was, too. I knew that the major cause was low self-worth. And so I started to work on who I was as a person and instead of being dependent on the outside world. And for me, like I say, the first thing I did was read The Road Less Traveled, and that started me on the journey, as the book title says, The Road Less Traveled, The Road Least Traveled by People. So I started to make my character more important than other things in life. So the combination of of physical exercise, physically doing something, and taking in information and not making my life about external validation, making my life about how I could validate myself and how I could accept myself, and reading material that was relevant to that. Terry, I usually end all the interviews with um, three first 30-day signature questions. The first one is the belief that you go to in times of change is what? The belief that I go to in times of change is the smallest things create the largest opportunities. So for me, the most minuscule things are where the greatest opportunities lie. So I'm always paying attention at this point in my life to the little things because those little things have always afforded me enormous opportunity, huge. Second question, fill in the blank. The best thing about change is? The best thing about change is growth. You have company in that answer. A lot of people answer that. (laughs) And my last question, the best change that you've ever made is what? The best change by far 
that I've made in my lifetime is forgiving myself and looking in the mirror and loving what I see, loving the person that I am. Wonderful. Gary, thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with us. You're truly an inspiration to me and to others. Thank you very much for that. I've been speaking with Gary King. Gary is a leading expert in the field of self-help and motivation and the creator of the Power of Truth programs. You can learn more about Gary at his website, thepowerofTruth.com. I'm Ariane. Thanks for listening. And for more interesting and inspirational interviews, please come and visit us at first30days.com. Mm-hmm.